This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Sometimes Thomists tend to focus so much on the physics, because it is hugely important. So this is the work in which Aristotle uh, lays out his general principles for how uh, nature works in the most general way. You know, what are the ways, like, how do we talk about any, like, how do we talk about, how do we talk about a change in such a way that it will apply to any change we encounter? How do we talk about uh, substances or accidents in a way that it will apply to any substance or accident we, uh, we encounter? How do we talk about the general ideas around time and place? And, you know, there's other, uh, you know, talks about the, infin- uh, the infinite and the void, the continuous, all these sort of general principles. And that's hugely important. And if you get that wrong, you're, you know, that you've got to be careful there. But as, as Aristotle himself and Aquinas and Albert strongly emphasize, you're not done with natural philosophy when you do, uh, uh, you don't understand natural philosophy when you, when you finish Aristotle's physics. You're just getting started. Uh, and until you work it down to its details, it's an incomplete project. Um, so the attempt here is to uh, at least uh, motivate that a little bit. So this is, this is, and just, this is only just part one, right? I haven't even gotten to the stuff on animals. Uh, so this is all his works on animals. Anyway. So in actual fact, I'm not going to touch on all of this, but I will talk about what I am going to talk about a little bit, uh, a little bit there. So um, in fine Thomistic fashion, I want to lay out what are, what are the final causes of this talk? What am I hoping to get across here? One, I want to explain in some detail how St. Thomas Aquinas would have understood the major divisions of nature in his own way. I mean, if you just present change in the way I did with, you know, a paper airplane and a match, it's sort of, it, there's a lot of details that are left out. And even Aquinas would be very dissatisfied if that's the only thing I talked about. So I want to try to get beyond just the simple presentation, just the sort of general principles, and try to get into some of the complex details just to make you aware of the fact that there were amazingly complex details about this system of thinking about the world. Um, and of, uh, the way that uh, uh, medieval thinkers at that era tried to understand the natural order using these principles and point out some of their successes and failures. Um, and in particular, I want to point out three sort of lesser known principles um, coming out of uh, broadly kind of Aquinas's work uh, and, 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 and parallel things that I think while, while a lot of what Aquinas has to say, as we'll see, is not, is not true, uh, a lot of what Albert has to say is not true about reality. Uh, uh, particle physics would be a lot easier if there are only four fundamental particle, fundamental fields. Um, so it's uh, the, the reality is much more complex. But there are some instincts and principles that they apply in a particular context that that context may not make sense to us. But there's a way it's it's helpful to understand why they thought the way why why they argued for these. And I if I squint at it, I feel like these might be useful. Uh, in helping us to make sense of, of how we might apply um, uh, some of these principles in our day. Um, now, again, I'm fo- this is the Thomistic Institute, so you know, this is, I'm, I'm giving a talk on St. Thomas Aquinas. So why why am I why am I letting Albert the Great in here? Um, it, it's it's in some I mean it's you know uh, it, it's a couple of reasons. Uh, one is 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 a uh, uh, again a little bit of a pet peeve with just my own thoughts and, and instincts about uh, as a Thomist and realizing how sometimes limited they are, particularly about um, uh, particularly about uh, substantial form. Um, I think again, it kind of like that image I put. Like even most Thomists who think about this stuff and take this idea seriously, um, uh, that they, they they tend to think about substantial form primarily as like 
an, like human soul or, well, no, no, I can't do that. So, cause that's, that has rationality. So maybe the animal soul, but we don't, we, we tend to forget about plants and, and materials, which have substantial forms, but act in horribly different ways than animals do. Um, and it's now in one sense, Thomas, who spend a lot of time reading Aquinas can be forgiven for this because the substantial form that Aquinas talks about the most is the human soul and soul in general. It's, he's a theologian. His, his focus is on primarily on, uh, on, on God and then our relationship with God. So he does at times talk about the material world in a little bit of detail, but most of his corpus is thinking about um, who God is, including the idea of who Jesus Christ is, about our relationship with God and what it means for us to be related to him. And so the focus of that tends to be human persons. Um, so in some ways, Thomas can be forgiven to sort of fallen into that. But I would argue that Aquinas, Aquinas did not fall into that trap. Yes, he wrote primarily on uh, the human person, but he was very, very aware of the science of his day. Uh, and you see little snippets of it, pieces of it uh, in his writing. Um, and there's awesome amazing links between Albert and, uh, uh, um, uh, and Aquinas on some of these things. The, the, I just discovered this from creating this talk, which I think is awesome, that the oldest extent, extant manuscript that we have of the De Vitus Halibus, which is Albert's you know, uh, 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 commentary on a um, spurious work of Aristotle, but also extended uh, commentaries on collections of plants and everything he knows about plants. And it's sort of the most comprehensive book on plants with new insights that people had never noticed before. Um, the oldest extant manuscript we have of that is, you know, scholars clearly attribute this to scribes who worked for Thomas Aquinas. So the same guys who were, who were, who were writing manuscripts for Aquinas made a copy of this from Albert, and, and they make the argument they might, have just, they might have gotten it from Albert's own manuscript. So Aquinas was very aware of what Albert was doing and very interested in it. Not that he incorporated it in every way, but it's, um, uh, it, it's, it is Aquinas' understanding of nature is going to at least begin with Albert's. They do end up disagreeing on certain things. It's not that it's a one-to-one. We can't say exactly what Aquinas thought about, you know, falcons, because he never writes about falcons. Um, but there are a lot of things. Albert writes a lot on falcons. He knew a lot about falcons. He was really into falconry. And his whole list of the De Animalibus is like, it's like a paragraph about, you know, about the phoenix, a paragraph about sparrows, and like pages about falcons. Um, but I'd argue Albert is just a really good insight into the complexity of the understanding of nature in the 13th century that Aquinas is in some ways taking for granted. He's presuming his own knowledge of that and the people he's writing for. He's presuming their knowledge of that. And so I think it's helpful for us to be at least begin to be aware of that complexity. Um, just as an example, right? So uh, if you look up, you know, again, at that, that point of, of, of uh, Albert or so, there's a really great tool for uh, the index domesticus, which will search the entire purpose of, 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 of Aquinas. And so Aquinas does talk about minerals about 50 times. And he talks about the soul 28,000. And, and that is right and fitting. Uh, now, if you go and poke at those mineralibus things, there's some really interesting things he has to say. A lot of it has to do with whether minerals will be in the resurrection. That's a whole other topic. So, um, but, um, so the, the general structure of what I'm going to try to do, in part because of the kind of um, even my own, I found, you know, recognizing myself, this tendency to presume and jump straight to human beings or at least animals. I'm going to try to work from the bottom up. So we're going to start with the four elements, work our way to the minerals, get into plants, and probably not say anything about animals. Um, but, uh, um, but in the course, trying to lay out some of this complexity of the, the understanding of how the four causes and the principles we're talking about applied in concrete cases, 
um, as well as some of these interesting uh, insights or interesting principles they draw. So we're going to start with the four elements, which in one sense is really easy to talk about. Oh, yeah. Earth, air, fire, water. Got it. Okay, let's move on. Okay, let's let's be careful here, right? Okay, so technically speaking, right, so there are the four elements. This is drawing on Aristotle's understanding, which he uh, inherited in some ways from uh, uh, Empedocles and yet uh, uh, adjusts, as we'll talk about in a moment. So I think, okay, it's a bit more complex, right? So fire is uh, the, 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 the element that has the qualities of hot and dry, right? So the, the lowercase words are, are primary qualities. The uppercase words are the elements themselves. So fire is hot and dry. Earth is dry and cold. Um, water is uh, wet and cold. Air is hot and wet. Great. Okay, now let's move on. Okay. If you look at it, it gets more complex. Because earth, air, and fire, water are the simple bodies. Sometimes, in Aquinas himself still do this. We'll talk about these are the elements. But properly speaking, uh, with the way Aristotle talks about it, and Aquinas never quite get, he doesn't quite finish his commentary of the De Geracione, so he doesn't say exactly what he has to think about this, but you can find pieces of it in other parts where he says that, okay, yes, that the elements, the principles of understanding what these, uh, what, what these things are, are the qualities. Hot, cold, wet, and dry are the elements, and each simple body, earth, air, fire, and water, is uh, 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 manifests two of these qualities, uh, these elemental qualities. Hot, dry, uh, for fire, etc., etc. And yet, it's still more complex because hot is not really hot, right? Hot is not just out by burning the stove, right? Hot is actually an expression of uh, a kind of activity. And he thinks there are two primary kinds of activities in material things. The two primary kinds of activities are hot and cold. The two primary kinds of passivities are wet and dry. Hot is the kind of activity that associate things of the same kind. Um, so uh, it, it, it brings things that are alike together and, and separates them out from things that are different. Whereas cold associates everything, sort of just like lumps everything together and pulls everything of whatever kind it is. Wet uh, is the passivity that is readily, readily adaptable in shape. It is very easily uh, adapted to whatever the container is uh, and can be very easily divided. Dry is the passivity that resists that kind of adaptability. That is readily determinable by its own limit, right? So the, the actual tangible feeling of hot, cold, wet, and dry um, are, are related to these, but there's a certain sense in which the actual elemental principle is something more abstract in a certain sense um, than just what I feel, like just the feeling of hot, the fact that this water is wet, um, and yet it gets deeper, right? Oop, uh, I skipped three, apparently. Um, oh, no, did I skip? Darn it. Um, three was supposed to be... Um, yeah, so this is water, but it's not the element water. Even for Aristotle, uh, and, and, and Aquinas talks about that, right? that the elements as they exist, the things that we see as earth, air, fire, and water, are very, very closely related to the simple bodies, earth, air, fire, and water, but not exactly the same. All the things that we actually deal with, and this is whether it's all, all, or, or most, uh, I've seen different arguments on this, but most of the things we deal with are actually mixtures of these things. So even this water is going to have a little bit of earth, a little bit of uh, maybe fire, a little bit of other things mixed in. It's predominantly water, but it's not pure, simple body water. And I think the clearest example of this is he's saying, right, so fire is not the thing that you just saw when I lit that match, right? That's 
hot and orange and glows and gives off light. That the most kind of pure form of fire that exists in the universe for Aristotle is really high up near the highest, uh, uh, very, very close to the, the, the sphere of the moon. And that is just perfectly transparent. There's not like weird glowy orange stuff in the, su- in the sky all the time. That is fire properly speaking, which is pure hotness and dryness. And the, the fire that we, uh, that, 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 we, that we see and deal with is constantly interacting with air and, 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 earth, and various forms of earth, you know, whatever it is you're burning, the wood, the various things. And so the particular coloration actually is rooted in the fact that it's a mixture of these other things. Um, so it is the, 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 the closest we can get to because it's really, we don't actually interact with that highest stuff. Um, but there's a way in which even the simple bodies don't actually exist as simple bodies. Um, they are, everything we deal with is at least a little bit of a mixture of the various elements. Um, more generally, like, so if we actually talk about these simple bodies, and this is, again, this is a debatable, debated point among Aristotle scholars, but for Aquinas, this is very clear for him. The simple bodies, earth, air, fire, and water in their purest form, are substances and are composites, therefore, of prime matter and the substantial form of whatever element it is. And that substantial form has two proper accidental forms, uh, most proper accidental forms, you know, whatever the two particular qualities that it has uh, associated with it. Those two qualities um, help to explain some of the other related qualities that we get to. So, um, uh, you know, sort of the, yeah, the, the transparency, for instance, of, of, of water and air and, and fire, but the lack of transparency in earth he sort of tries to explain using the, 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 the fact that, that, that Earth is this particular combination of dry and cold. Um, and also importantly, right, physical things are sensible because of these four qualities, right? Um, our senses are primarily adapted to dealing with these four primary qualities, particularly our best sense, what Aristotle thinks is our best sense in Aquinas Christum, the sense of touch. These are the tangible qualities these are the primary qualities that underlie all of the other things that we touch. So roughness and softness can be explained, uh, uh, rooted in a particular combination of dryness uh, or a particular way dryness manifests. Um, um, and, and, and other sort of tangible qualities are built on top of these other, uh, um, these other qualities. So there's a way in which um, all sensible things come through these four qualities. Our, 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 sorry, our senses are rooted in these four qualities. There's a really interesting thing he says about sight and whether sight might, in principle, be, be a better sense than touch, but uh, he's like one sentence and runs away. Um, so I'm very curious about that. Okay. Um, okay. Now I want to talk about, okay, so that's a rough introduction to, again, these simple bodies, but right, the simple bodies are, you know, they may exist, but it's, you know, they don't exist very, very, they don't exist very commonly. Most things are mixtures of things. Well, how are, um, uh, so, and this is, I'm going to try to, this is a, 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 a complicated, well, yeah. There, again, there's debate about how to read Aristotle on this. There are various theories about this in uh, uh, the, uh, the Middle Ages coming from, uh, coming from the Arab uh, interpreters of Aquinas. And I'm going to present uh, sort of Aquinas' treatment of this, which, um, you know, um, if, if, the air, if, the, if the world were made of uh, earth, air, fire, and water, seems pretty reasonable to me. Um, and uh, this comes from a sort of short little work he has called De Mixione Month, Elementorum. You want to find a really good translation of it and really good commentary on it. I highly recommend this book by Bobic, uh, Aquinas on Matter, Form, the Elements. Um, he has this, 
uh, another work of Aristotle, and then like really interesting reflections on particle physics. So I highly recommend it. Um, but so there's two ways that were presented of how could the elements be present in something that was a mixture. One was that they were there with their substantial forms. So you actually had fire as fire, earth as earth, water as water in the thing. Uh, but their qualities had been sort of uh, rounded off so that the, uh, the thing manifests itself as this sort of mean collection of qualities. And Aristotle argues, well, first off, matter, any one piece of matter can't take on multiple, let's say multiple substantial forms. If you have a particular piece of matter, um, it's going to be either earth uh, or air or fire or a squirrel or, or, uh, or a human person. Uh, it's not going to be multiple things. That was one of the points I wanted to emphasize in the last talk, but I didn't. So we're just going to we're just going to uh, posit that. And, and uh, I think a, a better uh, or a, a parallel argument he makes is that a particular substantial form can only inform matter that is properly disposed to it. So the matter that that fire exists in is disposed to have the qualities of hot and dry, whereas the matter that water exists in is disposed to have the qualities of cold and wet. So the idea that the very same matter is somehow disposed to these contrary opposites is, is, uh, makes no sense to him. Um, so the best you could do is that you'd have a little piece of air fire right next to a little piece of water, right next to a little piece of air, right next to a little piece of matter. You couldn't have, you couldn't have all of those substantial forms in the same matter. The best you could have is little pieces of each of them next to each other. But now we're getting back into atomism and, 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 and that's not a real mixture for Aquinas. Um, he has an interesting thing to say here, though, right, that this would be a mixing only to the senses, as if its parts too small to be perceptible had simply been placed next to one another. Um, again, the chemists are probably lots of things peaking and peaking their interest. Um, but he thinks that this is not a real mixture. He thinks that the world is made of real mixtures um, that, that are, as, as we'll see in a moment, sort of the same all the way down. So if I have something that is um, um, yeah, that, that is actually water or actually, as we'll talk about it, actually uh, a diamond, right? It's continuously, dot, dot, it's continuously the same sort of thing all the way through, diamond all the way through. Um, um, and it's, as we'll say, homeomerous, it's this, all of its parts are exactly, have, all have the same qualities. Another sort of argument people tried to put forward was that, okay, well, this, the, the elements exist with their substantial forms, but, you know, the substantial forms themselves are rounded off. So it's sort of like this, you know, an amalgam of the, the form of, of, of uh, earth and, uh, and, and fire, say. Um, again, this is sort of uh, um, proposed by various Arab interpreters of, of uh, uh, Aquinas and, and some other of his contemporaries. And he finds it anathema, like substantial forms either are or are not. And while accidents are the sorts of things that admit of gradations. You can have a whole range of temperatures, a whole range of colors. Substantial forms either are or are not, right? You can have a better squirrel and a worse squirrel, like a healthier squirrel, a stronger squirrel, but it's either a squirrel or it's not. It's not, it's not half squirrel. Now, evolution, what's going on? Okay, set that aside. Um, and then, so something is either, you know, rock or water, uh, 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 wine or a squirrel. So the proper qualities of these can be greater or less, but not the substantial forms. So Aquinas' solution is that the elements, uh, how, how the elements actually are in the mixed bodies. These mixed bodies are composed of the elements, but the forms of the elements, therefore, are in mixed bodies, not indeed actually, not as informing it as actual fire and actual water and actual earth and actual 
um, uh, um, air. There we go. Uh, but virtually, said virtue. So, okay, this is not virtually as in virtual reality, as in fake, not real. This is by their power. Um, what he's saying is, is that there is a certain power of each of these uh, simple bodies, um, that the, the power of those, those qualities. And when they come together in the mixed body, they come to exist as a complete mixture that is the same in all of its parts. And the resulting power of the mixture is somehow a mediated mean, a mixture between the powers of the elements. Not, it's not pure hot or cold, but somewhere in the middle between those. Um, so that these elements are virtually present, not actually present. He also thinks it's possible to break, break something back into the elements and sort of get the elements back out if you have the right kind of natural process. Um, but they are present by their power. Um, so this is a strange idea, um, but in, in Aquinas' context, I think it makes a lot of sense. There are ways in which I think it might even be useful in a very, in a very modified form in a contemporary context for thinking about how um, different kinds of things might exist as part of other things and, and how, how the, the powers of various parts might be mediated, not exactly as this, uh, the, the, this, the same way as the hot, cold, wet, dry, but that it, it might help us to kind of think about the possibility of what it means for something to be composed of something. Um, yeah, so uh, I'm going to try to stick to uh, medieval physics, not, not modern physics. Okay. Um, okay, so that's just like averaging over qualities, right? So you've got, you know, you go back to our square, right? Oh, so hot. Uh, uh, um, and so if we think about the qualities, right? Okay, so if, if we have the most hot and most wet, then we have air. So if we have a little bit, you know, if, 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 it's, if it's not pure hot and pure wet, but it's mediated by maybe some earth. So it's like, so, you know, so then diamond is somewhere maybe, uh, maybe that spot. And then like this spot is mud and uh, that spot is flesh and uh, that spot is, no, not exactly. As, as you start to read the way that Aristotle uh, himself talks about these things and, and Albert in particular, while it is the mediating of the qualities, there's even a way in which the same quality acts a little bit differently for each of the elements. So while it is in one sense hot, you know, both fire and air that is hot, the way heat acts through fire and the way heat acts through air is a little bit different. And so when you bring the four elements together, it's, it's not just a two-dimensional plot of exactly what quality we're in. It ends up being a little bit more multidimensional. Um, that gives him the freedom to say all sorts of interesting things, many of which are not true. But uh, it's, it, it, there's a certain complexity and, and, and balance that he's trying to find in making sense of um, how these various mixtures might work. So that's kind of the theory of mixtures in general. Um, but let's move into like the, the next layer of mixed bodies, which are the natural mixtures are going to be minerals. Um, and so for this, where we go, well, we'll go to uh, Albert's book of minerals, um, De Mineralibus, which I, I, I found this a couple of years ago. Uh, I, I, you know, just punking around online. I didn't realize, didn't realize the book existed, found it for like 99 cents on Google play. And only the other day realized that it was a, 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 a professor at Bryn Mawr uh, um, that, that, that did this translation. So this is a geologist who was just interested in the history of geology uh, and did a really good translation um, with digging into all of the, um, um, the various other histories of, of geology, different lapidaries or stories of stones and making sense of exactly what stone is Aristotle saying. So, you know, reading Aristotle, or sorry, uh, Albert, I mean, it's one thing to, you know, just read Albert in the Latin, but 
But it's another thing when you just come across a word that you have no other context to. So the effort that people have put into, particularly in this and in the Day on Malibus, if you know any botanists out there who want to translate his book on De Vegetalibus, I'd really appreciate that. Uh, uh, there's some good there's some good articles on it, but uh, I'd, I'd love to dig in more detail. Okay, so this book on De Mineralibus, it's, uh, there's not actually an Aristotelian book he's commenting on. He's just sort of, uh, um, but he's applying in some ways Aristotelian principles. Um, so it's looking at stones and metals and certain minerals that seem to be intermediate between stones and metals. And he starts the same sort of pattern, first with stones, then, then with metals. We're mostly just going to talk a little bit about book one there. So, um, so he talks about stones in general and then goes through his list of precious stones that he knows and, and thinks he knows about them. He talks about metals in general and then his list of metals he knows and things he knows about them. And then he has sort of a selection of other uh, me uh, minerals in between, uh, sort of alum and a couple of things that don't quite seem to fit exactly into stone or metal, but uh, as he understands them, but are, are minerals. So in the process of this book one, he really he literally just walks through the four causes. What are the four causes that make sense of stones in general? Um, uh, so it's not exactly so. You know, he spends a bit more time on some of them, uh, some of these, and others. But so for material, right? So he says, okay, though there's sort of two broad types of stones. He thinks they're sort of the, the more opaque stones, the more transparent stones. He thinks broadly speaking, the more op opaque stones are primarily earth with an admixture of some bit of moisture, some bit of water, and uh, um, to mix it into its parts and help it cohere. Um, whereas water. Uh, sorry, uh, whereas transparent stones are primarily water. That's where the transparency comes from. But with an admixture of something earthy to impose a bit of a boundary on it, to sort of let it, so it, to prevent it from just flowing away. And he says, well, look, this works in ice. If you make it cold enough, ice, uh, ice solidifies into a certain, certain shape. Uh, so if you added the right kind of earth, you could sort of make that hold even at not so cold a temperature. Um, so that's the broad story he has for for the the, the, the mineral uh, the material out of which these are made, drawing on the the the, the, uh, the four elements, um, and then he has he starts talking about okay what is the efficient cause what what brings about these particular stones, and again here it it sounds simplistic and yet there's a depth to it oh it's a mineralizing power so this sounds like you know the uh, the, the early modern complaints about uh, about scholastics just you know. It's like, well, it's, 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 it's the thing that does the thing. So we're, we're good. Um, and there's a sense in which that is correct. That is what he's saying. And yet there's a depth to it, right? Um, he's saying that there is, if there is this particular um, new thing that comes about, um, there must be some power adapted to uh, some agency that is able to bring about this particular kind of change. That's another key aspect that I kind of glossed over from last time that Changes don't just happen. They only happen with the right agency that's able to actually affect them. And the proper agency is going to be, first and foremost, something that is touching and working on the thing. Um, so while there's a sense in which he does talk about that this mineralizing power is imparted from the heavens, and as soon as we hear that, it sounds, you know, it's like it's, it sounds scary to us, but there's a very physical sense in which he, he means that, that the heavens move the, the, the material stuff and send light rays and actually impact and change the, the uh, and, and have effects on the, the, the stuff around the places where rocks tend to form. And so that power is mediated to first the matter that becomes the rock and as well as the surrounding place around it that gives them the power to form this particular rock. Um, and so it's present in the material like that the rock is that that becomes the rock, the stone uh, when, the, uh, when it has the right conditions. 
and in the place, the particular container that's around it. Um, and in a certain sense, the heavens sort of wield as an instrument, either heat uh, in the first case or cold in the second case. So it is heat and cold. It is the power of the elements that are doing this. But there's a way in which something is happening that is on the surface above the power of the heaven, uh, 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 um, uh, of the, the four elements on their own. This sounds very strange and in some ways is, but just to back up, the very everything the four elements do only ever happens because the heavenly, the heavenly bodies are acting for Aristotle and Aquinas, right? So what happens if the heavenly bodies stop acting? Well, we go and look at the supplementum and we read about the resurrection when the, the sun will stop. What, is it, what does Aquinas think there's going to be? The four elements and no change. There'll be no generation, no corruption, just earth, air, fire, and water, pure form, no mixtures. Um, sorry, no animals, no plants, no minerals. Um, so we can talk about that later, but the idea that it is the activity of the heavens that allows every kind of change. And so while, yes, this is specifying a particular kind of activity for this particular kind of change, it's not as much of a leap for him. It's not, it, it's, it's not actually a God of the gaps where it's like, I don't know, oh, the heavens did it. It actually has explanatory power for him in a way that is hard for us to understand because of the, the way they understood the action of the heavens in, in the, lower, uh, the lower world. Okay. Um, so jumping ahead, the formal cause, right? And, and here he spends a bunch of time arguing, do stones have substantial forms? Or are they just sort of transient mixtures of, of the elements? And this is, it's not, a, again, this is something I'm not 100% clear on. So for instance, he compares them to say, clouds and rain and snow which it seems like he thinks are just a sort of transient mixture of the elements. But, I, but my gut is they still would have to have some kind of substantial form that's not just the elements. I don't know. But he's very clear that there's something much, much more substantial about rocks and metals here. One, simply by the fact that they're stable and sturdy and solid and it's hard to break them and they maintain their shape for a very, very long time. Um, and their powers, obviously. Uh, you know, magnets attract iron. Uh, sapphires cure abscesses. Uh, gold shears man's heart. Yeah, yeah, they're powers. Um, so Aristotle, like many of his contemporaries, presumed that there were particular powers associated with particular stones and metals. Um, uh, and we're going to say a lot more, a good bit more about that in a moment. But um, so he, but he thinks that okay, if this kind of thing, magnets, sort of magnets, do this kind of thing always then there has to be a substantial form that seats that particular power. Um, it's not coming from the elements, right? It's not something of earth, air, fire, and water that explains magnets attracting, the attraction of iron. It's not earth, air, fire, and water that can explain ab, uh, uh, sapphire curing abscesses. So there must be something over and above simply the particular mixture of the four elements that is, uh, um, is that, so, so that the substantial form is not just the particular way these four elements come together, but something additional that has this particular power rooted in this particular kind of stone. Uh, and that's where, like, if you read through his list of stones, you get all sorts of very interesting stories. Now, he's very good about saying, okay, this is something I heard from a far off land. This is something that people say, but sounds kind of sketchy. And this is something like, I saw this. This totally happened. And he totally saw sapphires cure abscesses, like, twice. Um, so <laughs> it's, yeah. Um, magnets are great, though. So, uh, okay. Um, <laughs> Now, this is my favorite line in this entire book, um, The Final Cause, because he spends, you know, a, a chapter or two on, on uh, material, a chapter or two on efficient cause, a chapter or two on formal cause. He has one sentence on the final cause of stones. We need not look for a final cause, for in physical things, uh, the formal cause is the final cause. 
On the surface, that sounds like a horrible cop-out, and yet I think he's absolutely right. Um, why do I say that? What's the final cause of a baby squirrel? To be a mature, healthy squirrel and procreate and make more squirrels. So there's a way in which you can be a squirrel without being like everything a squirrel would want to be. Everything is like that a really healthy, mature squirrel could be. And you could be a squirrel that has gone past your maturity and is now getting old and aged and not being a very good squirrel anymore. So there's a certain like perfection of squirrelhood that it takes time to get to and it takes effort to, to refrain from. It just is the case that the moment a diamond exists, it is a mature diamond. It is the sort of thing a diamond is intended to be. And all of whatever activity the diamond might have after that is going to be trying to prevent anything stopping it from being a diamond. So that there's a sense in which the, 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 once we have described the, 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 the sort of mature form of this mineral thing, that is what this substance is tending towards, tending towards being stable as this kind of thing. Um, I love that. I think it's great. I think it helps clarify a lot of uh, uh, issues with final cause, but um, 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 yeah, we got to need to move on. Okay, so um, so the powers of these stones. I want to say a little bit about this. And from this, um, I'm drawing on again, sort of going back to Aquinas, who has a whole work uh, on this exact question uh, on uh, operationibus occulti naturae, the hitting workings of nature. Note the hitting workings of nature. Um, so certain properties of stones. Albert will explain with the four qualities, their hardness, why there are pores in them, why there are colors. All of that is like lots of stuff about earth, air, fire, and water. He does not try to explain attracting iron and things like that with these four qualities. Um, Now, Aquinas makes an important difference here, right? There are lots of stories of things that happen, but he's saying it's only here. He's only thinking about things that happen consistently, not in a haphazard way. So there are stories about relics that cure and cause miracles. Right? But it's not every relic that does that or every relic of a particular saint that does it. And yet there is a certain sense which he believes, and there seems to be evidence uh, in his day, that every sapphire has at least impot- has, has the power to, to cure abscesses. Every magnet um, um, has this power to attract iron. So it's something about that consistently appears in these particular stones or metals or other inanimate things. So again, mag- his examples commonly magnet attracting iron, rhubarbs dispels caloric humor, Traditional, in, uh, traditional Chinese medicine still, still prescribes rhubarb for, for, as a laxative. So um, I don't know enough about exactly what chlorocubitor is doing uh, in, in, in medieval biology, but it sounds interesting. Um, and sapphire stuff, maybe. Okay. Um, <laughs> but the point I want to get across is, um, well, he does say, okay, why are, where do these powers come from? It is the heavenly spheres having a role as, as an explanatory principle over and above simply the particular combination of... of, of uh, the, the four elements. The four elements, the four qualities cannot explain these powers. There needs to be a higher principle that can explain them. That is the heavenly spheres. But these powers are natural and they are caused by the substantial form of the stone. And yet, the, the power um, uh, is because the power cannot be explained simply by the workings of the four primary qualities, that power is not directly sensible to us, only indirectly. We sense its effects, right? We don't see magnetism. We just Bring, you know, if you just look at a magnet, it's not clear that it has this power until you bring the iron towards it. Um, in a similar way, there's a sense in which, and he doesn't emphasize this too strongly, but this becomes much, much more weighty in the scholastic tradition, that because this power is not properly in, uh, uh, sensible, not part of the four elements, it's also not intelligible. 
We can't actually understand it. We can know it exists, know it's natural, but we can't offer a, we can't offer a reasoned explanation for why it exists. It's just there, and we have to accept that. And there's a certain humility in the medieval scholastic tradition towards nature about that. We try to explain it. Like Albert's trying to explain all sorts of things in all sorts of detail. And yet there's a realization that, okay, maybe we can't explain everything, which is in one sense beautiful and in another sense horribly frustrating. Um, and in some ways you can argue about, you know, what the, the role this had in the history of science uh, or, or, you know, um, uh, encouraging or discouraging science. Um, okay. Um, one last minor thing on minerals. Uh, just one comment on metals. Again, you know, metals are, again, mixtures of four elements. They're mostly water. Why? Because they liquefy. Things that liquefy flow like water, um, but not just any kind of water. Because water, if you put it in really, really hot stuff, evaporates. But metals don't. Uh, they just stay liquefied. So he says it's, it's uh, mostly water, but a particularly unctuous, subtle moisture of water that has a certain amount of uh, uh, earth mixed into it so that the heat does not dry them out. And it's incorporated and thoroughly mixed with a, a subtle earth. And what he's doing here is, is bringing together a particular strand of alchemical tradition with, uh, with Aristotelian uh, uh, four-element theory, saying, yeah, quicksilver and sulfur, which is a particular Arabic alchemist theory, um, trying to reconcile that with an Aristotelian way of, of talking about things. The reason I pointed out is because these so, so metals are both, properly speaking, a mixture of earth, air, fire, and water. And yet at certain times, it's just easier to talk about them as a mixture of quicksilver and sulfur. That's a proper way to talk about them as a kind of higher level of matter where they're this, 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 you know, so we're not talking about the, the elements, but a kind of element proper to metals uh, that is uh, quicksilver and sulfur. Um, it's ultimately explained by earth, air, fire, and water, but in some ways it's easier to explain when you deal with this higher, higher level of matter. Okay, um, we're going to talk about plants and then I'm going to wrap up. Um, so... Uh, so here, right, so, you know, kind of the, the, the short answer, right, so four elements, earth, air, fire, and water, minerals, mixtures of elements with a substantial form. I put the question mark there just because for, 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 for Albert and, uh, uh, and Aquinas, they make this strong argument. There are lots of people that disagree with them uh, about this. And plants are organized mixed bodies with a vegetative soul. So that's, you know, your one sentence answer you can give for what, for what a plant is, but what, what the heck does that mean? So, um, so plants are substances and have substantial forms, but their substantial forms are souls. What does that mean? Well, if we look to Aristotle and Dayanima, the soul is the primary act of a physical body capable of life. And a few sentences later, the soul is the primary act of a physical bodily organism. So what is, in this context, what do we mean by life? Well, uh, Aquinas, helpfully, uh, you know, I have to quote the Summa somewhere today, um, uh, ask the question, what is life? Uh, and he says, okay, um, the, that, that life, properly speaking, uh, whereby it is clear that those things are probably called living that move themselves by some kind of movement. He is about to go talk about God's divine life. And so he's talking in here, movement can be in an abstract, non-bodily sense, but he thinks that what makes something living is the fact that it has some principle of self-motion. Okay, so that explains a little bit, okay, so the soul is the primary act, the thing that makes actual a physical body that can, that can move itself. What's this organism thing? Well, something having organs, having distinguishable parts with distinct, distinguishable functions. So a material substance cannot move itself all at once. It can only move itself if one part, one organ, pushes and pulls on another organ, right? 
this is so this is again that primary distinction um and it's an inner it's an interrelated series of things so it's animals have self-motion um in, inanimate things don't or animals and plants living things have self-motion um uh living things have have organs uh, uh, um, um, uh, uh inanimate things don't um Broadly speaking, inanimate substances are homeomerous. They are the same in all of their parts. It's diamond all the way down. It's, it's, it's sapphire all the way down. Um, now, you can do things to break it apart into the elements, but there's not pieces and parts of different things down there. And so they just cannot move themselves. To, for that to happen, one part of the diamond would have to act on another part of the diamond, but the two diamonds have all of the same qualities. There's no There's no... There's no, there's no um, contrary activity and passivity with which one part of a diamond is going to push or pull on another part of a diamond. So a diamond can only act with respect to things outside of it. It can only react to things that are acting, from, uh, acting on from outside. Animate substances are het- uh, heteromerous. They have different parts. They have organs. They can move themselves by one, arg- uh, one organ acting on another, right? Uh, the, 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 the nerves can fire and pull the tendons, which can pull the muscles, which can move the bones. Um, they have a diversity of actions and reactions depending on the context. Whereas for various reasons, the, whatever activity we're going to assign to inanimate things, it's, it's, sort of, it's singular, right? Um, uh, they, they don't have the, the sort of the multifarious capabilities of living things. Now, note, that's not to say that um, living things are like random pieces all the way down. At some level, you get back down to homeomerous parts, right? So the various organs in an organism are made up of these parts that are the same all the way down. Classic examples of this being flesh, which is, for, for, again, for Aristotle, it's flesh all the way down, or bone, which is bone all the way down, um, uh, or veins or nerves, as, uh, things like that. Um, so those, those particular organs or, or sort of parts of organs are the same all the way down, but then they combine together to have interesting structure that makes the different animals be what they are. Um, very briefly, I'm only going to cover the first two, just sort of the four causes of plants, because I think it's just helpful to, to, um, to see the way Aristotle, or the way Albert thinks about these things. Again, the four elements is what we start with, right? So the four elements are present, each of which contributes in a particular way to the different kinds of activities in the development and action of the plants. So for instance, the fact that, that plants are able to grow upward is, is due to a certain preponderance of air in the, part, uh, in, those, uh, uh, in the activity of growth. On top of that, there is a particular kind of combination of the elements, which is the sap or the humor, that is in one sense an organ. It is a part of the plant, um, but in another sense also matter, um, uh, a kind of matter. So it's a particular combination of earth, air, fire, and water, um, uh, so it's both a particular organ of the plant, a definite part. The sap is in a spot. It, it's actually there as a part. And the immediate matter out of which the other organs are made. So it contains in the sap the roots and the leaves and the stems and everything else in potency. He thinks something very similar about animals, where blood is in potency to be all the other organs of the body. Um, uh, so blood is both an organ, a part that's actually there, and a certain kind of matter that can be, by the power of the body, transformed into various parts of the body. And then another aspect of the material aspect of the plant is the fact that there are various organs out of which the plant as a whole is composed. Talked about nodes, roots, veins, marrow, bark, wood, flesh, flowers, fruit, seeds. Um, all of these have their particular role and particular arrangement of them uh, make the plant to be what it is. 
So the formal cause, again, going back to the plant has a soul. Um, and so that is the primary formal cause and the, the, the seat of all of its various powers and activities, accidents. And yet there are ways in which different aspects of the plant soul manifest in different parts, right? The, so there is a certain form of each organ, which is not independent of the soul, but sort of a part of, a sub, a sub portion of the soul manifesting in a particular way at a particular place. Um, so the fruit as an organ is associated primarily with the reproductive powers. Not just that, but um, there are certain powers that manifest there in a way that they don't manifest in the roots. Um, so certain quantities, qualities, activities, and reactivities proper to each of those organs uh, in the way that they're constituted. So the, for, the, the picture of this plant is not just, oh, it's got a plant soul. It needs to redound to what are all of its parts and structures as well. Okay. Uh, at this point, I'm going to uh, uh, stop going through that and, and point out the last sort of weird, but I think oddly helpful thing. Where from the metaphysics, uh, where Aquinas is talking about um, uh, the fact that the parts of anything, but particularly an organ, are not actual. They're only potential, right? So the leaf of a plant is not actual in the fullest sense because it's not independent of the plant. Um, it is a part of the plant, um, uh, but it's not, uh, it's not itself a substance, so it does not have uh, on its own the fullness of actuality to it. It sort of shares in the actuality of the plant, and yet the organs, in a weird way, are sort of like the closest to actuality because they have a very strong definiteness. Where it's, you know, there, there are certain organs have, you know, have certain, as you were saying, uh, parts and structures and activities localized in certain places. So they're almost actual, but not quite. Um, and there's this really awesome line where Aquinas talks about grafting. It's the only place I've found where he talks about grafting in plants. This is the thing where you cut off a piece of a plant, you stick it on another plant, it becomes, and, 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 it, and it grows and lives. So he talks about when you, when you cut off a piece, that piece becomes actual, right? So it was potentially, it was, it was you know, uh, a, a, a part of this other plant um, and only a part, an organ. Um, when you cut it off, it actually, be, it becomes itself in a certain sense. It's now separate from the plant. It's an actual thing independent of the plant. Then you stick it in this other plant and it becomes potential again uh, because it's now part of this larger structure. But this is contrary to nature. And uh, um, now, that's not to say it's evil. It's just not the natural ordering of things. It takes human ingenuity to make this happen. What I want to get at here, though, is this idea of this actuality and potency of the parts, right? Because, again, organs have this near subsistence, but are attached and dependent upon the organism. When, the ta when detached, the organ becomes actual, but it becomes actually something else, according to Aristotle and Aquinas in their understanding of this, right? So this is a quote from the metaphysics. Um, For the hand is not a part of man when it exists in every state, but when it is disposed in such a way that it can perform the proper work of a hand. And this it cannot do without the soul, which is the principle of motion. And so it is necessary that the hand be a part of man insofar as it is animated, but it is not a part of man insofar as the man is not animated. So the hand of a dead man is properly speaking not a hand in the same way that the hand of a living person is. Or if someone cuts off my hand, that thing that was attached to me and was, was animated, was part of me, is now something different. We still call it a hand because it looks a lot like it, but there's, there's a difference now. Detaching an eye is only equivocally, not exactly the same, an eye. That eye sitting on the table, sadly, cannot see. 
and it needs the whole body to do that. Um, yeah. So this, I think, is another just interesting question of what does it mean when we separate something from, from something else? In what way is it the same? Clearly, there are things that carry over, but is, is the totality of what it is to be a part of something else, um, how does that change when we separate, separate off pieces? Or when we, uh, uh, when, we take, when, we, when we focus on the parts? Obviously, the parts can be hugely important for understanding the working of the organism as a whole, and that organ in particular, but there just is something different about the eye when it's functioning as part of an, uh, as part of an animal than when the eye is on the operating table. Um, it's very, very similar. It's materially very similar. It's formally very similar. But I would argue that you can point to just there are certain activities that it does not fully have. Um, uh, we can talk about hooking it up to all sorts of machinery later uh, and what that might be. But we're staying medieval. All right. So um, so, so that's and in some sense, I mean, uh, for the sake of time, I'm not going to dig into animals and human beings. Um, but I hope this portrayed one um, an interesting aspect of the complexity of the understanding of nature in Aristotle and Aquinas. Uh, particularly for those of you who are fans of Aquinas. So when you hear Aquinas sort of throwing out a random example uh, um, uh, uh, from natural philosophy in the context of some moral theology or, or Christology, like there's a lot of stuff behind that. Uh, just, you, know, you don't necessarily know all of it, but it's, 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 it's important not to presume the simplest reading of it because there's a whole lot of complexity behind this picture of nature. Now, right, a lot of it is just wrong. <laughs> so, but it could be wrong in interesting ways. <clears throat> So I find, I mean, I personally am interested in just exactly how and what ways it was wrong, why it was wrong. Other, but there are some other sort of just not simply just being wrong, but like structural problems all throughout. And I think one of the biggest ones that we talked touched on before, there simply are no homeomeres materials in our understanding of, of, of the cosmos. There is nothing that is the same all the way down. Um, although there are not indestructible atoms either. So it's not that Aristotle is completely wrong, sort of. Neither one wins. Uh, so, so what is the right mediation between, you know, democracy and atomism with hard stuff all the way down, just rearranged, versus this idea of homeomerous things all the way down? What is the mediation of those going to look like? And this occult powers. Um, I don't know the history well enough, but there's strong arguments to be made that this, you know, was a barrier to advancement of science and history. Um, um, I think it's at times overblown. You hear all the early, early moderns accusing everybody else of, of, of using occult powers. The notion of occult powers at the end of the scholastic period is more fraught than it is in the time of Aquinas. Um, but there's a part of me that would kind of like to be able to know everything. Uh, so so I, I, it would be really nice if there were parts of nature um, that were not unintelligible to us. But the strange and useful principles that I think are worth reflecting on in some depth, in, in depth and I think can help to kind of nuance some of the conversations we might have going forward are this idea of virtual presence or presence by power. The idea that something can be a part of something, not actually, uh, and not by like chopping it up into pieces, but by manifestation of the way it acts, um, mediated by its relationship to things that are around it. So there's going to be a whole lot of like localization and parts talk here. There's going to be nowhere in uh, Aquinas' discussion of uh, uh, virtual presence. But I think there, if I squint at it, funny ways in which you can talk about like hybrid orbitals and sort of strange things going on electrons, having a, 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 a squinty relationship to an idea of virtual presence, maybe. Um, occult powers. And again, I put this on there with some hesitation because I would like there to be answers to everything. But are there simply just natural powers 
due to some higher level of order that, but not due, that cannot be fully explained by the material composition. This is, I think, an open and debated question that the whole notion of our emergence sort of pushes at. Are there just sim simple things that can't be explained by looking a layer down? Um, now, we wouldn't necessarily call them completely unintelligible uh, in the way that, 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 that uh, the scholastics would, but do we need to be ready to accept that? I kind of don't want to, but you know, it's something to be thoughtful of. And finally, this notion, again, of equivocation about separated parts. In some ways, this is parallel to the question of virtual presence, but is there just a difference between an electron that uh, 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 exists in an intercellular plasma and an electron that exists in hydrogen gas and the electrons that exist in this water and the electrons that exist in my body? They're, I would say they're all, I want to say they're all electrons, but is there something about their existence that only makes sense because of what they're part of in those different contexts? That there's continuity around there, and yet there is something of difference. That we want to be, we can we can name them all electrons, but, but to fully understand the totality of their activity, do we need to understand them in the context of the thing they happen to be a part of? Um, so uh, with that, I, I will stop and uh, move to questions. For, yeah. All right. Um, yeah. So you have a, a robot which can move itself and it's composed Yes. No, no. Very good question. What kind of robot? Are we talking about a robot that's like like 1950s steel and girders and like and 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 and, and plugging bolts in? Like I'm I'm I think there are very, very good arguments why I can say that that is not uh, that is not a substance but a collection of substances and therefore it doesn't have a soul. If you're talking about like a robot, quote unquote, grown in a lab, um, I'm a little more squeamish on that. Um, sort of like grown out of biological constructs and yet with some sort of maybe like computational control over it, that gets weird. Um, um, but I think, so I think it kind of depends on the, I think you can look at the kind of, the nature of the particular inst instance and have an argument for why this might be, actually have this sort of unity that might approach something like a living soul. Um, the question of a, of a, a rational soul is completely different, um, but I think the idea of it having a, like that something you're growing out of biological stuff in the lab, um, actually having a living soul, um, I, I think is, is is reasonable. Oh boy, yeah. Uh, so, for allow me to be the condensed matter physicist, nice. your high energy physicist. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to 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 just branch myself out. Yeah. Well, I know I'm, maybe I'm wrong in connecting this your high energy physics background, but. The claim that there are no homeomeric materials at all seems, okay. uh, to me, unknowable in principle. Uh, and and uh, I guess, it, is there a distinction between, here's this thing, and when I slam it into something else, these are the parts that explode out? Is there a difference between saying that and saying, therefore, when I, before I exploded it, it just was a sum of those different parts? Yeah. Um, and I, I also, yeah, I guess I just, I can't really imagine what reality is like if nothing ever anywhere is going to be on Maybe, uh, maybe, uh, yeah, so maybe you spoke to it. So I would say, I, 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 I am totally open to the possibility that if we dig down enough to some level, we might find things that are homeomerous, but that does not extend all the way up to what is sensible to us, right? So the things that look to be the same to us definitely have pieces and parts that we have to understand to understand their working. There might be a layer we get down below at which it becomes homeomerous, but it's not homeomerous from like bottom to to the thing, like to, to like what I can see with my senses. Um, so, so I mean, this is this is the point of chemistry, right? That 
it is just not the case that flesh is flesh all the way down. There's all sorts of chemical structures that explain what it is. That's, so, that's what I mean. So is the difference really though, is this uh, maybe not a huge difference because uh, at some point, it seems, like maybe we're just saying like, oh, some of the things they call homeomeris, we would no longer call homeomeris, but that's, but is it just sort of like a, right? Like, all right, but no one was saying the human body was homeomeris. Yeah. But uh, they would say the blood blood is homeomeric. Yeah. So well, maybe blood's not homeomeric, um, but like, but maybe an electron is. Yeah. And then, but then, I guess the thing to me is like, but uh, it seems also like there's no point at which we can really say finally something's homeomeric. No, that's okay. So, so I guess yes. I, I I'm I'm open to the possibility that I overstated that. But like, what I would what I would strongly say is like, water is. I both want to say that water is a substance. And water has a unity to it. And yet to, ha- yet to say that to understand what water is as an inanimate thing, we have to understand something of parts acting on parts. Not necessarily like parts in the sense of my eye, which is always exactly in the same place. The parts might not have that high level, that highest, highest level of actuality that, you know, the eye and the hand have in the human body. But there are parts in this water that explain why it's wet and why it freezes. So I have to, to understand that water, I have to understand the hydrogen, oxygen, um, I have to understand the electrons. Um, so that, that's what I want to say. It's like, there is no substance that we deal with that is, that, that does not have parts and whose explanation is not going to involve at least some aspect of identifying some, some kind of parts. And he, and Howard would have said that, uh, Inanimate things yes. are all homeomeric. This is like the sharp cutoff, right? All inanimate things are homeomeric all the way down. All in, all animate things have parts. Okay. The the residue of living things, so like wood, clearly has like veins to like that, but that's a residue of it having been uh, a part of an animate thing. But um, inanimate things are you know the same all the way down. So I think so. The, the, this fact that like there's just lots of stuff we want to say about inanimate things that needs that needs parts talk is just not at all in, in the kind of medieval tradition. Um, and so that's, again, why chemistry is so important. <laughs> yeah. When St. Albert is saying that some of these occult powers and operations are not intelligible, yeah. um, because they're not sensible, yet he's trying to describe them. In some mm-hmm. sense, you can talk about the strength, you can talk about if they decay over yes. time. Yeah. I mean, so you, you are able to make true statements which yes. describe and limit those properties of those powers. Right. So what exactly is he intending by this statement that they're ultimately not intelligible? What he's saying is there is no science of magnetism. You cannot make demonstrative statements about magnets, right? You can, like, demonstrative statements in the Aristotelian context about nature are going to be rooted in arguments based off of the four, the, the four elements. Um, um, you can say certain qualitative, and you can, you can have very good opinion and qualitative things about magnets, but there's not going to be, properly speaking, a science of magnets um, in, that, in that Aristotelian context. Of, so of the definition of the- yeah, so like the, like, the, like the tools and the definitions by which we're going to do it are all going to be rooted in the four qualities. Um, and we don't have, like, there's something going on that we don't have access to. I, so Aquinas does not say this explicitly. I'm in kind of like imparting that and imparting a little bit of later developments on it. So I could be wrong about him in detail, and I haven't read Albert in detail on this, so I, I, I could be off on that. But my impression is that the reason it's hidden, the reason it's occult, is because it's not uh, uh, explainable by the normal process by which we explain, we usually explain natural processes, which is the four elements. 
And that's a barrier to our understanding of them. And you mean natural processes at the level of minerals and any other things? Or you mean throughout? Because as Albert's not a reductionist who thinks that you know all the vital operations, for example, can be derived from the simple form. No, 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 no. Yeah, you're right. I mean, they're, the, the, the four elements are going to have a role in talking about what happens in, uh, in animals, but it's going to be qualified by the substantial form. Um, what's going on in the cold powers is it's not the qualification of hot, cold, wet, and dry by the substantial form of the magnet that makes it attract iron. It's not hot, cold, wet, and dry at all. And so there's something new going on there. Whether that happens in, whether there are things explicitly like that in animals and plants, I'm not 100% sure. I don't, um, yeah, I'd be curious. I don't know. All right, Shepard? Yes. So, uh, the... The principle of virtual presences, I do the one that you like to keep. And, uh, I'm a fan. Stay with it. So, uh, the question uh, here, I mean, several questions. The first one is so, what happens is that there is a substantial change, right? When the things uh, that uh, uh, come together to form a new substance. And there is a substantial change. So, the question would be how are the powers of neutral speak here that are then present in a, in a mixture? Mm-hmm. How does power go through this substantial change and remain uh, in this sure. uh, new substance? Uh, I think Gloria Cross has an answer to it. She says that, uh, it, I mean, she suggests that they remain in the disposition of matter. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether you would like it or not. But then, so this is one question so how they uh, survive in a way. The other question would be okay, so but then contemporary science would say, but I. Can actually go and trace those electrons in my body, physically speaking. And then, and then the last part of it, uh, if I can retrieve them back, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. So can I say that I have uh, just a, 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 let's say an atom or a particle that enters it, goes through substantial change, and then actually the same thing can be retrieved or mm-hmm. not the same thing? How yeah. does it work? Okay, so that's a lot of questions. Um, <laughs> first, maybe just a principle that I find helpful and compelling for understanding why there is similarity between the powers of what you start with and the powers of what you end with. And this is rooted in something I kind of glossed over, right? In that simplistic description of change, where it's, okay, you've got, you've got privation, form, and matter. Done. Not quite, because every natural change has an agent. And the agent is going to be something that has a capacity, that has the capacity to bring about that kind of change, right? Um, so, for instance, um, uh, it is, yeah, so I, you know, I, I have the capacity to make water into part of me. Uh, I do not have the capacity to make rock into part of me, not directly. Um, that, that, that for any possible change, there is a, a necessary potency in the matter to be open to that change, but also you need the right kind of agent. Um, and those agents are going to work through various accidental changes, sort of changing the property. So in a kind of, t- in a, like in the medieval context, what you're doing is you're slowly, you know, you're, you're taking a thing that is, you know, primarily hot with the heat of fire and um, you're bringing in enough of, of another element to sort of pull that heat back to be more cool. Um, and so you are moving that, those accidents through that continuum. And at some point you get to sort of a stable structure that becomes this. So not all air is the same temperature right? You can heat up air and cool it down. There's a range of temperatures at which you can change air and it's still going to be air. But if you change it too much, it's not going to be air anymore. It's going to either condense down to be water or it's going to burn and become, or it's going to turn into fire. Um, within that range, right, there, you know, uh, um, uh, 
depending on the mixture, there's sort of my understanding of like, again, this medieval context is um, with the right kind of formative powers, uh, a certain stable state stops where that, that, that smooth transition sort of is frozen somewhere um, and frozen in a way that's stable for that kind of substance. There's still some leeway with it, but it's now frozen there. The conversation in a modern context is going to get a lot more complicated just because, again, these powers are not smoothly distributed throughout the thing. They're going to be localized, right? Where like, you know, like the, the, you know, the, the polarity of water matters and the fact that there's there, that, that, that involves a difference in space. So whatever we're going to say about the powers of, if we try to, if we try to apply this to electrons or atoms or things in something like water, we're going to have to include something of localization in that. Um, there's also going to have to be at least the potency for um, like actu- actualizing the parts in a particular way. So, you know, there are huge experiments that have tons of water sitting around waiting for like a very particular neutrino to interact with a very particular particle in that conglomeration of water. So it is possible to interact with the individual pieces. The idea of constantly tracing the individual pieces in a continuous manner, I think is much more, ske- much more sketchy on. There are things you can do like, you, yeah, so you, there are like radioactive tagging, things like that, but particularly the level of like protons and electrons, I'm much more sketchy about that, um, of being able to keep track of the parts at that level. Um, but that's, I mean, again, I think we have to look at the details of the individual cases. Again, now that whether the thing is like you put in some water a couple of days later, do I get the same water back? I think um, I'm okay saying no. Um, and I'm not worried about that, I guess. Because I, again, I don't think it's actually physically possible, even if we wanted to, to trace the water I drank all the way through every, like every, every piece of it through every part of my body and find it on the way out. Um, I think there's enough kind of, again, this is the particle physicist talking about chemistry, enough quantum indeterminacy that we're going to, like, it would be, it would not actually be possible to keep track of that the whole way through. 